Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high-yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Kevin Venus from General Internal Medicine on Hypertension Canada's 2020 Comprehensive Guidelines for the Prevention, Diagnosis, Risk Assessment, and Treatment of Hypertension in Adults and Children. So let's dive right into it. Tell me about yourself and how is hypertension management part of your day-to-day practice? Uh, So as you said, I'm a general internal medicine physician here in Toronto. So I would say my hypertension-related care looks a couple of different ways. On the inpatient side, there's a lot of discussion around how HAST hypertension affects somebody's acute hospital presentation. In the outpatient setting, uh, we have a specialized hypertension clinic at the hospital that I work with. And so we think about hypertension in in some different ways, both in terms of first-time diagnostic testing and workup, and also uh, in the setting of some difficult to manage hypertension, resistant hypertension, and secondary hypertension causes as well. So maybe we'll start with talking a little bit about the definition of hypertension for our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about how we define hypertension and how the thresholds for diagnosis might differ based on the setting of measurement and the type of measurement device? Sure. So uh, it sort of seems like it would be a simple question to answer, but it's actually not. Um, and as you said, you know how you diagnose hypertension will vary depending on how it's measured and uh, the clinical scenario. So the current guidance uh, suggests a couple of different ways. And it really, uh, before we get into that, I think it's useful to talk about the different ways that we can measure blood pressure because there's a lot of acronyms and alphabet soup. So you may see acronyms like AOBP, which is the Automated Office Blood Pressure. And this is a blood pressure measurement that's done by an automated cuff while the patient is unattended, alone in a room, calm, quiet environment. Uh, And the automated machine will perform a series of measurements and then average them out to provide a final blood pressure reading. There's also the OBPM which is the office blood pressure measurement. And this is a way to measure blood pressure without an automated cuff. So this is done manually, although there is a preference to use an electronic measurement device as opposed to the classic sphygmomanometer that we've all seen in in doctor's offices. And in this OBPM, the practitioner is in the room conducting the blood pressure measurement. Uh, We're supposed to measure three times, discard the first time, and then take the average of the second two. There's also ABPM, which is ambulatory blood pressure monitor. And this is, as I'll talk about in a minute, the gold standard for diagnosis uh, of hypertension for over a 24-hour period. So it's actually an automated cuff that uh, somebody can wear for a 24-hour period at home. And the computer programs a frequency of measurements depending on the time of day and what sort of protocol has been measured into it. And then finally, there's the HBPM, which is home blood pressure monitoring. And this is a patient-driven blood pressure monitoring series akin to a blood pressure diary in a way. And the recommendation is to have seven days of measurements, You discard day one, and then take twice daily measurements for the next six days, and then relay that to your healthcare practitioner. That's sort of the, the alphabet soup of acronyms. And then once we understand that, then it's a bit easier to decipher what the diagnostic guidelines say.
So if you look at the diagnostic guidelines, uh, and we'll talk about in the office setting first. So if you have a mean office blood pressure measurement, that OBPM of greater than 180 over 110, then that is consistent with a diagnosis of hypertension and you can move forward with that. If that office blood pressure measurement is, does not meet that cutoff, but the patient has diabetes as a significant comorbidity, then the instructions are to, if you're only able to complete an OBPM, to conduct three measurements on different days, uh, different visits. And if the measurements that you get are greater than 130 over 80, then again, that is very likely consistent with a diagnosis of hypertension. The guidelines would say that this is probable hypertension and that you should consider other, other testing modalities. If, on the other hand, you have an automated blood pressure machine, one of the most common proprietary products is the BP True. Should mention I have no stake in this. Then a office blood pressure measurement with an automated cuff greater than 135 over 85 is also very likely consistent with a diagnosis of hypertension. And the recommendation is to move on to a confirmatory ambulatory blood pressure monitor, ABPM. And so really what I would take away from this is that there are multiple ways to come very close to diagnosing hypertension in a physician's office, but to really confirm the diagnosis, we should strive to complete a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor to get a sense of what somebody's blood pressure does outside of the practitioner's office at home. And so if you're able to access these devices, and I should mention that access is an issue around the province and country uh, at large, what the guideline uh, suggestion would be is if the daytime average is greater than 135 over 85, or the 24-hour average is greater than 130 over 80, either of those scenarios would be consistent with the diagnosis of hypertension. If, you know, especially maybe now, given the advent of virtual care um, and a lot of home assessments being conducted, if, you know, your patient is able to complete a home blood pressure monitoring series, as I said, that's the seven-day discard the first day, twice daily measurements, and the average they, they come up with over that six-day period is greater than 135 over 85, that's also consistent with the diagnosis of hypertension. Finally, I should add that if somebody presents to a healthcare setting, whether it's a uh, emergency room or on the hospital ward or in an office with features of a hypertensive urgency or emergency, then they should, you know, if they haven't already uh, be diagnosed with hypertension and would not necessarily need to go through those other outpatient monitoring procedures, except for maybe a 24-hour blood pressure monitor to better characterize their pattern of hypertension. Thanks, Kevin, for going through the alphabet soup that's in the hypertension guidelines and reviewing for us some of the terminology and how the algorithm really falls into place. So that's diagnosis. Thinking a little bit about management, what are some of our targets for hypertension management and how might those targets be different across our patient populations? Yeah, so this is a, a constantly moving target in a lot of ways and can be somewhat difficult to keep straight in one's head the various cutoffs. One paradigm that I think is useful to think about is outlined in the Hypertension Canada guidelines, where they uh, ask you to consider a risk stratification procedure to try to understand if your patient is a low, moderate to high, or a high-risk patient. And they outline some instructions on how to do that. I think what's 
is the most important is to understand who is defined as a high-risk patient uh, because they may be most suitable for some of the more intensive blood pressure targets that we'll talk about. And so what the guideline committee has, has deemed a, a quote-unquote high-risk patient is somebody who's 50 years of age or older with a systolic blood pressure between 130 and 180 and one or more of a list of cardiovascular risk factors. And so that uh, list of risk factors includes clinical or subclinical cardiovascular disease. That would include cerebrovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, an estimated 10-year global cardiovascular risk greater than 15%, such as you might arrive at by calculating the Framingham risk score, for example, or uh, somebody who's 75 years of age or older as an independent cardiovascular risk factor. And so if you've then identified those high-risk patients, you can think a little bit more about where your targeted blood pressure should be. There are other you know, specific clinical contexts that come into play that I think we'll have an opportunity to talk about, but this is sort of the, the bird's eye view. And I think the other thing that's important to keep in mind is uh, the potential difference between treatment initiation targets and uh, then blood pressure treatment targets. So just to expand on that idea of the difference between treatment initiation thresholds and then your treatment target, for example, if you have identified uh, somebody as a low-risk patient with hypertension, which really means that they have a, a low 10-year global risk and the absence of cardiovascular risk factors, then you may decide instead of starting pharmacotherapy to try lifestyle modifications exercise, improving diet, uh, smoking cessation, alcohol cessation, all of which can greatly improve somebody's blood pressure control. Uh, and so for that reason, there's a discrepancy between the treatment initiation target and the treatment target, because we don't want to just reflexively start everybody on pharmacotherapy. So for those low-risk patients, the guidelines suggest that if somebody has blood pressure greater than 160 over 100, you should strongly consider pharmacotherapy and then treat to a target of less than 140 over 90. So potentially you could imagine a scenario where somebody has a blood pressure of 150 systolic, but they're engaged in their care and want to use this as an opportunity for lifestyle change. And it might be reasonable to sort of watch and wait and monitor them over the next couple of months. In contrast to that, if somebody has a higher cardiovascular risk and is identified either a moderate or a high-risk patient or a patient with diabetes, which counts as a high-risk comorbidity, then the recommendations are to start treating with pharmacotherapy somebody's hypertension once they are above their treatment target. And so there are a couple of different scenarios where this might come into play. For example, somebody with diabetes as a high-risk comorbidity, we know that these individuals have better long-term cardiovascular outcomes with more intensive blood pressure control. And so both the initiation and treatment targets are at the 130 over 80 benchmark. And so we're aiming for a long-term blood pressure control lower than 130 over 80 for these patients. For high-risk hypertension patients, as defined by the Hypertension Canada guidelines, there is the option to even try more intensive blood pressure target and control to a systolic blood pressure less than 120. Note that there isn't a diastolic recommendation for this treatment plan or for this patient group, um, and that's because most of this suggestion comes out of the SPRINT trial, who identified some higher-risk patients and used the systolic blood pressure as their target.
Thanks, Kevin. You alluded to the sprint trial when discussing some of those high-risk patient groups. Could you expand a little bit about the demographics of that patient population and who that entails? Sure. So the SPRINT trial uh, sought to identify patients who would benefit from more intensive blood pressure control. And, you know, to understand who these patients are is also important to uh, consider the exclusion criteria of the trial. So these patients were largely patients with chronic kidney disease who did not have diabetes and may have had uh, some degree of proteinuria. And so the patients that were excluded from the trial included those with glomerulonephritis, polycystic kidney disease, greater than one gram of proteinuria per day, or uh, a very low GFR, less than 20. They also excluded patients who had advanced frailty or were institutionalized, which I take to mean, you know, living in a long-term care setting. Thanks. That's really helpful to know not only how we define the patient groups in terms of low, moderate to high risk, but also the treatment targets, which may be different than the diagnostic targets or numbers per se. So thanks for going through that, Kevin. You mentioned that one of the first things we'll do specifically in some of our lower risk patient populations for hypertension, that we may start with non-pharmacologic strategies as our approach to management of hypertension. And I know we should be counseling all of our patients on some of the non-pharmacologic measures. Can you speak a little bit to how you counsel patients on the non-pharmacologic recommendations? Yes, it's a really important point, Shaliza, and uh, one that unfortunately uh, sort of gets passed by the wayside in busy clinical settings. Um, And we know that robust lifestyle modifications can actually have a huge effect on not only somebody's hypertension, but their long-term health outcomes and cardiovascular health. And so, you know, what I usually recommend sort of falls into a few different buckets, so to speak. So in terms of physical exercise, increasing uh, your physical exercise, ideally to 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise at least four times a week, if not more, is, is recommended. And what I mean by moderate intensity is such that you should not be able to carry out a calm conversation like we're having now. You should be short of breath and not able to speak in full sentences. Some people also ask about uh, resistance training or weightlifting, and that's also very reasonable to include in your exercise regimen. The guidelines don't really give a strong recommendation one way or the other in response to this, but say that it's a reasonable thing to try. We know from overall health promotion, uh, there are lots of benefits of weight-bearing exercise like that. The next sort of thing I try to talk about is maintaining a healthy body weight you know, which is a bit different for everybody. And there's important and nuanced conversations to have about the limitations of some of the metrics that are used, such as body mass index and other calculators that maybe don't take into consideration an individual's specific context. However, if somebody does meet criteria for obesity with a BMI over 30, or if they're looking to use um, their diagnosis of hypertension as a mechanism for lifestyle change, then what I usually counsel somebody to do is to rather than focus on a specific amount of weight being lost, to focus instead on a percentage of weight loss. 
And this sometimes makes it a little bit easier for people to conceptualize. And, you know, we know that if you're able to target between a five to 10% body mass weight loss over a medium to long period of time, six months to a year or even more, then there's direct health benefits that come from that, including blood pressure control. Alcohol consumption is something else I talk about. We know that alcohol use raises blood pressure. And if that's a significant factor in somebody's diagnosis of hypertension, that's important to consider as well. And then diet is uh, also important to discuss. You know, in terms of diet, there's things that I would counsel people to include and then try to limit a little bit. The main thing that we talk about as being very important is your sodium intake. And so especially if somebody has hypertension and other comorbidities that predispose them to volume overload, such as heart failure or renal failure, then maintaining a low sodium diet, uh, ideally towards two grams or less of uh, sodium per day is beneficial as well. And somewhat interestingly, if somebody doesn't have any comorbidities such as kidney failure to predispose them towards hyperkalemia, then actually increasing the amount of potassium intake has been consistently shown to also affect a long-term blood pressure lowering effect. Thanks, Kev. I also heard that people talk about specific types of diets that patients can either look up or look into. Are there ones that you recommend for management of hypertension? Yeah, so the DASH diet is well known by many. That stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. And it's a diet that is sort of modeled around the classic Mediterranean style diet, focusing on whole grains, lots of leafy vegetables and fruits, lean meats, uh, mostly poultry and fish, and healthy fats from nuts, uh, legumes, olive oil, and things like that. And so if people are looking for structure to sort of adhere to, then that's usually what I recommend. Other than our non-pharmacologic measures, I understand in going through the guidelines and when I was studying for Royal College, when selecting agents, we need to sort of look at the patient-specific comorbidities to understand what drugs or classes of drugs are appropriate for the patient or potentially less appropriate for the patient group we're looking at. So thinking about patients with past history of stroke or transient ischemic attack, what, what would be the classes of drugs for hypertension that you would select in this situation? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I just want to point out to the listeners that we're talking about patients who've had a past stroke or TIA uh, and for ongoing chronic blood pressure management. If somebody's having an acute stroke or, uh, or TIA, then there are separate specific considerations to take into uh, account depending on how that's being treated. So for this group of patients, what is recommended is usually a, an ACE inhibitor as first line with a thiazide or thiazide-like diuretic as an adjunct. And there are certain single pill formulations that adhere to this regimen. And just as a plug, single pill formulations or multi-drug formulations are a great way to improve overall patient adherence and sort of ease of administration for a lot of these medications, because most people are on a few different antihypertensives. Where most of that recommendation data comes from was from the PROGRESS group of trials looking at hypertensive management after stroke. Oh, that's really neat. I didn't know that the guidance behind that came from those trials. Great to know. Thanks, Kevin. (music) 
and going through the guidelines, I know that there are differences in agent selection if a patient has isolated systolic hypertension or isolated diastolic hypertension. Could you review this for our listeners? Yeah, this is a somewhat interesting distinction because really this group of patients should be identified as those having either isolated systolic or isolated diastolic or both systolic and diastolic hypertension without other compelling indications to treat their hypertension. So these are patients who do not have other cardiovascular risk factors such as chronic kidney disease, diabetes, past stroke or TIA, remodeling seen on uh, echocardiogram, for example. These are just your run-of-the-mill essential hypertension, usually, usually younger patients. And so it can be a bit confusing to pick a first-line agent because the guidelines actually suggest a whole host of different agents, all with quite good evidence. And here, as I alluded to earlier, you know, most patients will end up being on at least two antihypertensives during their life. And so single pill combinations is a great way to accomplish this. So first of all, for patients who have isolated systolic hypertension and no other compelling indications for treatment, then um, any of thiazide or thiazide-like diuretics, angiotensin receptor blockers, or long-acting calcium channel blockers, such as amlodipine, would be, would be appropriate. That list gets expanded a little bit more when you look at patients who fall under the diastolic hypertension with or without systolic hypertension category. And the ones that I just mentioned are also there, but also agents like ACE inhibitors or combination pills of ACE inhibitors plus diuretics, as we alluded to for the stroke category before. Really what this all comes down to, I think, and what I do in practice is most of the time, you know, pick an agent that I think is going to have a reasonable blood pressure effect for that patient and try to take into consideration what the most likely side effects of any given drug are for that patient. So if I think that they might be especially prone to electrolyte abnormalities or volume depletion, I'll probably avoid a thiazide a diuretic and maybe choose an ACE inhibitor or a calcium channel blocker. If I'm not sure about their renal function or it, you know, there's some ambiguity there, then I might choose a calcium channel blocker, which has less renal considerations. But for many people, an ACE inhibitor, a thiazide, diuretic, or a long-acting calcium channel blocker are all great first choices. That's awesome to know and really points to the fact that hypertension is just as much an art as it is a science. Thinking about our patients with diabetes, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the preferred agents for this patient population? Yeah, so this is an important group of patients because they are at quite high risk for accelerated cardiovascular disease. And one of the considerations that's come up over the years has been whether or not they've developed either overt proteinuria or microalbuminuria. And we know that for patients who have this condition, that RAS blockade with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers is very important both for blood pressure control and also for its protective effects and its effects on reducing proteinuria. Technically, if somebody has diabetes without proteinuria, it may be reasonable to use a different agent like a long-acting calcium channel blocker. But to be honest, in practice, we know that these agents are, are so good at protecting renal function and, and also protecting towards the development of proteinuria that I essentially use ACE inhibitors or ARBs in all of my patients with diabetes.
I think we'll segue to one of our last major points, which is resistant hypertension. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how we define resistant hypertension. And if we arrive at this diagnosis, what types of investigations or what line of thinking should we be sort of pursuing? Yeah. And so this is a sort of interesting area of hypertension management. And the term resistant hypertension technically means that somebody has a blood pressure above their treatment target after they're being treated with at least three agents at optimal doses. So that's an important point because it doesn't just mean that they could be on low dose of three different agents, but they should be on maximally tolerated dose of three agents ideally including a thiazide diuretic and usually also an ACE inhibitor or calcium channel blocker, sort of the big three. And you must also exclude other causes for inadequate blood pressure control. So if you've gone through the process to try to exclude other reasons why somebody's blood pressure might be still above treatment target, and you're sort of satisfied that they meet the definition of resistant hypertension, then there are a couple of big disease categories to consider. One thing to consider would be sleep apnea. Untreated sleep apnea can definitely cause significant hypertension. The other big category to think about is substance use. And so we talked a little bit about smoking, alcohol use as well, and then other substance use. So especially amphetamines such as cocaine or crystal meth or or other substances that cause both accelerated atherosclerosis and also uh, arterial vasospasm. The other big category of diseases in this group would be endocrine causes. And so without going into too much detail, these are conditions like hyperthyroidism, hyperaldosteronism, Cushing syndrome, and of course, pheochromocytoma or paraganglionomas, all important to consider in the right clinical context. And then finally, another vascular cause would be renovascular hypertension with renal artery stenosis or fibromuscular dysplasia. Thanks, Kevin. That's really helpful to think about the buckets of disorders that we should consider when thinking about resistant hypertension. I'm curious, when is a good time for someone to refer to a hypertension specialist in in the scenario that you mentioned? Yeah, so that's a great question. And essentially, if you if you find yourself in that scenario where you think that your patient has resistant hypertension by that definition, then uh, you should refer to a hypertension specialist. And Hypertension is a uh, quite a varied field practiced by uh, specialist family physicians, general internists, cardiologists, stroke neurologists, nephrologists, endocrinologists. And so exactly who you refer to might be different in your practice setting. But if you find yourself in that situation, then referrals certainly would be valuable, I think. And then, you know, any other time that you're running into difficulty with drug side effect profiles, for example, significant orthostasis, autonomic dysfunction, and nocturnal hypertension, but um, significant hypotension during the day, or uh, other situations where a specialist opinion might be helpful, I would, I would consider referring. I'm just going to open it up to see if you have any other comments for our listeners or anything else you think that would be helpful for our audience to know. Thanks, Shaliza. Uh, I think the, the last thought that I'd like to leave the listeners with is to really view hypertension as something that is supremely actionable and can provide a lot of long-term health benefit for, for our patients and is also an area of practice that really no matter what area of medicine you're in, you're going to encounter patients with hypertension 
And their hypertension is very likely to affect whatever medical problem that you're, you're seeing them for. And there was a very interesting commentary in Canadian Medical Association Journal earlier in this year, talking about how there's a need to really refocus perspective on hypertension management and control in Canada. And they, they quote some interesting survey data that says in 2007 to 2009, 82% of Canadians with hypertension were treated and 69% of them were treated to their treatment target. However, from 2016 to 17, only 72% of affected adults were treated, and the number who were ad had adequately controlled hypertension was down to 58%. So this is somewhat worrisome, knowing what we do about the changing demographics of our society and the complex comorbidities that we're seeing every day uh, in clinic or the hospital. The authors go on to comment on, you know, a number of reasons why this might be the case, including, you know, somewhat confusing multiple treatment targets that are coming out of new studies. And it's sort of hard to keep track of who should be treated to what extent and, and how far we should go with this. So I'd recommend that read to anybody who's, uh, who's interested and hopefully we'll be able to garner a bit more appreciation for the importance of long-term hypertension control. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to have to take a look at this article myself. Thank you so much for joining us for this session, Dr. Venus, on hypertension and a review of the hypertension guidelines. I learn something new every time I think about this topic, and we're so fortunate to have your expertise and your practical experience, as well as your pearls on how to make hypertension management in a person-centered way. So thanks for being here and joining us for this podcast. Thanks, Shaliza. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode on Hypertension Canada's 2020 Comprehensive Guidelines for the Prevention, Diagnosis, Risk Assessment, and Treatment of Hypertension in Adults and Children. Special thanks to Dr. Kevin Venus for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded and produced by Shaliza Halani. The Internist's Guide to Podcast Series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive Producers, Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Kirianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Visanthamohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.